Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. It's a truth that we recite, that we claim we believe every single week when we recite together the Nicene Creed. It's a truth that we're gathered here today to celebrate. The resurrection might be one of the most fantastic elements of our faith, something the world often has a hard time taking seriously. Dead people don't rise from the grave, we're often reminded, as if we didn't know that before. Yet, if we look at the historical record, we see plenty of reasons to be confident in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. New Testament scholar Gary Habermas offers six historical facts that all scholars, whether they're Christian or otherwise, agree upon when it comes to the resurrection. First, all scholars believe not only that Jesus was an historical person, but also that he died by crucifixion. Second, they agree that his followers had real experiences in which they believe they encountered the risen Christ. And of course, if it had merely been one or two of his followers, we might be able to write this fact off as some sort of grief-induced hallucination. But the fact is that Christ appeared to hundreds of people at different times and in different places. Further, to strengthen the case, despite Jesus' multiple warnings to the disciples about the events that precipitated his death and his promise of resurrection, they didn't seem to be expecting him to rise again. We might turn to Luke chapter 24, where Jesus appeared to his two disciples on the road to Emmaus, who were despondent about how Jesus' ministry had ended unsuccessfully in execution. They didn't seem to be anticipating any sort of emergence from the tomb. A third feature that all scholars agree upon is that many lives were transformed by claims of the resurrection. These are people who had once fled under the threat of persecution, like most of the 12 disciples on the night that Jesus was betrayed. But all of a sudden, something changed in each of those men, and they became willing to go to their deaths for the sake of the gospel. A fourth thing to note is that the resurrection was taught very, very early in Christian history. The Apostle Paul did most of his writings probably between 50 and 60 AD, so within 20 to 30 years of the original events in the Gospels. By his time, the resurrection seems solidified as an essential Christian doctrine, so much so that St. Paul wagers the entire Christian faith on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also vain. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And finally, we can look at the biographies of two important New Testament figures, St. James, the stepbrother of our Lord, and St. Paul, both of whom had not been Christians, who converted because of experiences that they had with the resurrected Christ. So this series of agreed-upon facts really only have one explanation, and that is that Jesus Christ really and truly rose from the grave. Last night at the Easter Vigil, we spoke about how that fact 
has great theological importance because his resurrection signals a victory over sin, death, and the devil and liberates us from their tyrannical oppression. But the question that remains for us to answer this morning is how should we then live? How does these truths affect our lives? And it is that question that St. Paul takes up today in our epistle from the book of Colossians. Now, on the side, I do a little bit of teaching. I teach a formal logic class. The formal logic teacher in me absolutely loves the epistle for today because St. Paul uses what's called a modus ponens argument to structure his thought. A modus ponens is when one starts with an if-then statement. Then you affirm the first part, the if plank of the argument, and then conclude with the then plank of the argument. So if A, then B, A, therefore B. If the Dallas Cowboys win the Super Bowl, then I will be happy. The Dallas Cowboys will win the Super Bowl, therefore I will be happy. We're celebrating the resurrection today. Miracles can't happen. This is the structure St. Paul uses in his argument. If you have been raised with Christ, then you should seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Earlier in Colossians, St. Paul has focused on the events of Good Friday, applying them to the Christian by saying that with Christ, you died. But here, the focus is on the positive element of the story. If you have been raised with Christ, This is because without the resurrection, the cross ceases to be important. It becomes relegated to really just one of the great tragedies of history. St. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is folly without the resurrection. But because of the resurrection, we know that the death of Christ, when applied to us, causes us to die to the world, which frees us to walk in the newness of life. So if A, then B. If you have been raised with Christ then you should seek the things that are above. Now, in our reading this morning, which is pretty brief, thanks be to God, St. Paul doesn't set out to prove A. His argument is called an enthymeme, in which one of the premises is left unstated, often for a dramatic effect. So Paul assumes that A is true. He assumes we have been raised with Christ. And the reason he does that is because Christ has been raised. The resurrection is real. And all of us who have been baptized are in Christ by virtue of our baptism, which was a major theme of the Easter vigil last night when we blessed the baptismal font. If you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. You have been raised with Christ, Therefore, seek the things that are above. Paul makes his conclusion a zero-sum game. Either seek what is above or seek things on earth, but you cannot do both. A few weeks ago, Deacon David preached a great sermon with that exact principle. He said there is no neutral in the Christian life. You're either going up the hill or you're sliding back down the hill. How nice of St. Paul to quote our deacon. To focus on things above is focusing on our life that is hid with Christ, St. Paul says. That happens when we see everything in terms of the gospel story and act accordingly, often to the bewilderment and chagrin of those who have not been initiated into the mysteries of faith. Now, lest we think that this means being preoccupied with 
things in heaven that uh, ignore things on earth, James Dunn, a New Testament scholar, argues that seeking the things which are above is not a preoccupation with what he calls the furniture of heaven, but rather a cast of mind, sustained devotion to an enactment of a life cause. The gospel then becomes the lens through which we see reality clearly. We see everything for what it is. And that reality is summarized for us in verse 3. You have died, and your life is hid with Christ and God. This new life that we receive in baptism is hid because it's not obvious without the eyes of faith. Yet, just because it's not seen by many doesn't mean it's not true. The gospel is the driving force of all of God's working and shaping of human history. This new life begins at the cross. It bursts forth from the tomb. It's found in the pages of the Holy Scriptures, and it's expounded for us by the teachings of Mother Church and the lives of her saints. It's brought to us through the beautiful sacramental realities at the heart of our worship. Christians are people in the world. We have to be. But we are not people of the world because we understand that the surface level, the material stuff, is not all there is. We understand that just underneath the surface, there's a vast mystery into which we dive, a mystery that we celebrate every single week, that a Jewish carpenter living in first century Palestine is God among us. And by his death and resurrection, he has saved the world. It's this hidden reality that we live out, centering our lives around the story of Jesus. And so we live in the present We live out of the past. We live looking forward to the future. We live in the present because that's where we are. Each of us find ourselves among a complex and intricate network of relations towards which we have obligations, whether they be the obligations of spouses or parents or friends or employers or coworkers or employees, neighbors, fellow citizens, etc. And seeking the things above... We don't abandon these relations, but we do reconfigure them. We reconfigure them around the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Because each of those propositions are true, it totally transforms everything. And so we live knowing that what is now hidden will one day be brought to light. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is risen. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. And today we feast, hopefully with a nice home-cooked meal. If you don't have one, you can come to our house today. Maybe I should have asked Caroline before I extended that general invitation. But also we feast in our hearts on the beautiful fact of the resurrection, So let our rejoicing give way to action. Seek the things above, and when Christ, who is our life, appears, then will we appear with him in glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.